We began our preaching series through the book of James on March 12, 2006, and concluded it on July 1, 2007, for a total of 43 sermons spread over 16 months. That was followed by a summer series of disconnected sermons on various texts as we were waiting for everybody to gather back from summer vacations so we could begin our new series, just in time for some who don't like to go in the summer rush to take their September vacations. But we are starting today in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book of similar size to the book of James. Like James, it has five chapters, 105 verses compared to 107 in the book of James. The purpose of both of these books is similar in some respects because both of them are written to encourage God's people in the midst of trials. These were persecution days for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did I choose 1 Peter for our next study? Well, one reason was to provide some additional variety. I considered taking up yet another one of Paul's epistles, but we have studied in succession two of Paul's epistles, Romans and then Galatians. And that's one reason why I moved to the book of James, and now I thought it might be good to move to Peter so that we have the opportunity of hearing three different human authors inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write God's Word. Three different men with different human personalities and different vocabularies and different styles of writing to remind us of the human side of the doctrine of inspiration. And yet I hope that we'll see in their writings one unity of truth and doctrine and even purpose that we might sense the common understanding of the gospel by all of these men and the spiritual truth which was common to them all. And in that, we can see the divine side of the doctrine of inspiration. Though different human authors, one author, God, all inspired by the same Holy Spirit, and all of them, therefore, having the same power of God as they are proclaimed. And I pray the Lord will enable us to feel the weight and power of divine truth afresh as we approach it in Peter's first epistle. Today we're going to look briefly at the author and then secondly at some of the things about the recipients and that's all we'll have time for as we examine verses 1 and 2 in part. We'll have to return to these verses at a future time. But the epistle begins and this is the introduction. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. First of all, the author. In common fashion of that day, the author introduces himself at the beginning of his epistle, and the author introduces himself here by the name Peter, the leading apostle of the, of the twelve apostles, and identifies himself by the name that was given to him by Jesus, not the name that was given to him by his parents, for they named him Simon, and he's known in the Bible as Simon, son of Jonas. But Jesus renamed him Peter, 
or Cephas in the Aramaic, Peter in the Greek, uh, both names mean stone or rock. And he is the only personage in the New Testament to bear this particular name, so there's no possibility of confusing him with anyone else. Peter, he tells us, an apostle. That was his position. Not Peter the apostle, though he was the leading apostle, but he makes no reference to that here. But an apostle, one of those who was called out by Jesus Christ to be an apostle. The word apostle means simply a messenger, one who has been sent, one sent by another on a mission. And it can be used in a general or a specific sense. And sometimes in the Bible we have other men referred to as apostles who are messengers of the church or even messengers of one of the apostles of Christ. But Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and that is a limited band, a select number of men selected by Jesus Christ carefully. Out of a number of disciples, he selected 12 to be his apostles. Judas proved to be a traitor. Another was chosen to take his place in Acts chapter 1. And then later, one more was added. Paul, Saul on the Damascus Road, an apostle born out of due season, the last of the apostles of Jesus Christ. But an apostle, and to be an apostle, one had to know the Lord personally, one had to be taught and trained by the Lord personally, and one had to be commissioned and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ personally. And Peter is such an one. And in this capacity, therefore, he represents Christ. When he tells us that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, he wants us to know that the words that he speaks have the same authority as the words of Christ. That's what he wants us to understand. That because he is an apostle of Christ... Because he is an extension of the work of Jesus Christ upon the earth, that the words that he writes to them are as authoritative as the words of Jesus Christ himself. They could not be any more authoritative if Jesus Christ stood upon the earth and spoke the words that we call First Peter. That's what Jesus was saying. When in John 16:13 he said, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. That was a promise to the apostles of Christ. That they would remember, they would recall, Miraculously, by divine inspiration, words of Christ that were not recorded in the Gospels. They would be taught other words of Christ from the risen Christ sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. God's Holy Spirit would teach them yet other truth that comes from Christ. And they would dispense this inerrantly, infallibly to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter wants us to know that what he writes is indeed the word of Christ. What a reminder. God uses common, flawed people who give themselves to him. Peter, the big mouth. Peter, always running ahead of himself. 
Peter saying things that he ought not and doing things he ought not. Peter, the braggadocious one. Peter, the one who fell so badly in denying the Lord. That's who we're talking about. That Peter. Redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and forgiven by the grace of God and called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit of Christ and made powerful in the service of Christ in the early days of the church and continues to be powerful in the service of Christ through the epistles which he wrote, which are included in the book that we call the Bible and which we are studying even yet today. And so as we move into the book of 1 Peter, let us listen carefully to the word of God. Let us listen prayerfully to the word of the Holy Spirit of God speaking through the human instrument, Peter. And who did he write to? What can we learn about them? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Where are these believers that Peter is writing to? Well, they are scattered all over Asia Minor, except for perhaps the southernmost part. All of Asia Minor, north of the Taurus Mountains, is described here. Several territories that were States in the Roman Empire who bear these names in the first century, and we can trace them back in history and find them on a map, and they pretty well cover the northern part of Asia Minor, as I say, all but the southern coastline and maybe the very, very uh, western coastline. Believers scattered all over that place, followers of Jesus Christ, identified here as pilgrims, In some translations, strangers or even aliens is the word that is used. Pilgrims, it is a word that means resident aliens living beside people to whom they do not belong. People who are not regarded as natives of the land in which they dwell. Pilgrims. Pilgrims of the dispersion. A second word. To reinforce this same concept. Pilgrims of the dispersion. Pilgrims of the diaspora. Which was a technical term for Jews who were scattered among the nations. A word that had been used for the Jews ever since the days of the Babylonian captivity. In the first century it is estimated that there were about one million Jews who lived in the land of Palestine there were an estimated 2 to 4 million Jews living in the diaspora. That's what it was called. Living in the dispersion, scattered among all the nations of the world. Living in the diaspora. But here this term, dispersion or diaspora, is used not of Jews in the physical sense, but of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's clear that that's... What Peter is writing to, not to Jews alone. You can see it as we move through the epistle. But notice, for example, chapter 2 and verse 10. As he identifies his recipients in this way. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's language describing Gentile believers in Christ. You'll recognize that from other places in God's word. Or look at chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 
For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That could never describe a Jew. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Describing the past life of the majority of the people that Peter is writing to, he describes them uh, as heathen Gentiles living in wicked immorality and idolatry. But now, saved by the grace of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, they are pilgrims of the diaspora. Here, this technical term used for the Jews is a title transferred by Peter and applied to the church. And we will see Peter doing something similar to that quite often throughout this epistle. This term, diaspora, pilgrims of the dispersion, simply reinforces again, doubly reinforces the pilgrim status of these saints. These are Christians scattered among the nations, aliens to the people that we live beside or that they lived beside, and I hope you understand this applies to us as well. We are pilgrims in this world. We are just a passing through. We don't live here. We're not natives here. We're not settled down here. We are are foreigners to the people that live around us who do not know the Lord. We are the immigrants living beside the natives of the land. That's the way Christians are to think of themselves. This concept certainly has implications for philosophy of ministry and church strategy The church is not supposed to make itself like the world in order to attract the world. The church is supposed to realize that it is not part of the world. We are pilgrims of the dispersion. That's the way the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is described. That's the nature, the character of the church. When we try to change it into something else, we are going to spoil the nature of the church as designed by Christ. And this certainly has implications for individuals, believers' attitudes. Don't get too comfortable in this world. Don't settle down too much. Don't think of yourself as a native of the land. I'm a native North Carolinian. I'm a native American. And I'm going to live and act as such. Well, we are people who have dual citizenship, to be sure. And we do have responsibilities and privileges that relate to our our native land, our native state, and our native land, and I don't mean to imply that we should abandon those altogether in any sense, but we should realize that's not all we are, and that's not primarily what we are. We are citizens of heaven. We have been rescued out of all of that, transferred to another kingdom, given another citizenship, living in another domain, under a higher authority under the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that changes everything. That changes everything about who we are and what we think about ourselves. How did these recipients of this epistle become Christians? Well, certainly by the preaching of the gospel, because that's the way everybody becomes a Christian. That's common to us all. 
Paul said it in Romans chapter 10. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So then, verse 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. How did these people become Christians? They became Christians by hearing the preaching of the gospel. But how did they become Christians? They became Christians by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. It is not the proclamation of the gospel alone that makes anyone a child of God. It is the proclamation of the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, applied to the heart individually to bring about repentance and faith, to bring new life by the power of God's word. God's spirit does that. That's what Jesus meant when he said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of the Spirit of God, you will never see the kingdom of God. How did these become Christians? By the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit who blows where he wills. By the work of that Spirit applying the preaching of God's word to their hearts. How did they become Christians? Some of them became Christians by Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. That, no doubt, is why Peter has a special interest in them. We read in Acts chapter 2, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, that is the rushing mighty wind, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia? Three of the five territories that are named in verse 2. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. Jews from those parts gathered on the day of Pentecost. So, of course, the first Jews from this area, I mean, the first Christians from this area were Jews by blood, by birth. But obviously, at the time when Peter writes, the majority of them apparently were Gentiles from the kind of language he uses. So it follows pretty much the same pattern as Paul's ministry. As he went into an area, went first to the synagogue, to the Jews, preached the gospel to them. God saved a handful usually of them. And then the gospel went to the Gentiles, and larger numbers of them were saved. And Jews and Gentiles made up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in that location. And it would be majority Gentile, but also Jew, blended together in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how did they become Christians? Some came by Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. But others likely became Christians by the faithful evangelizing of other believers. As these who heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost and were saved went home to Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. And God began to save their neighbors. God began to reach into the natives of the land. 
Not the Jews of the diaspora, but the natives of the land. And started saving them and making them spiritual pilgrims of the spiritual diaspora. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did they become Christians? Very possibly by unrecorded labors of Peter traveling and preaching in this territory. We don't have that recorded in our New Testament. And yet it does seem likely for a number of reasons. We see that there are a lot of Christians here now, and they are a majority Gentile, so the day of of Pentecost really can't account for such large numbers of believers. And we find that Peter takes the role of spiritual father to them. He's writing to these particular believers, even as Paul would write to the believers in the places where he had evangelized and planted churches. And all of that would seem to suggest to us that Peter had traveled into this territory and preached the gospel with great effect. That may be why Paul was not allowed to go in that direction. In Acts chapter 16, Paul was looking for his next assignment And it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the regions of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. 1 Peter 1.1, Asia. After they had come to Mycenae, they they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Bithynia, another territory in 1 Peter 1.1. You see, the Holy Spirit knew where he was sending all the apostles, and he didn't necessarily want them overlapping one another in various territories. And Paul didn't intend to do that. He wouldn't have gone into those territories if he had known that someone else was laboring there. He tells us in Romans 15, 12, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Paul intended to be a pioneer. Paul intended to to go into virgin territory. Paul intended to go places where the gospel had not been proclaimed before. Maybe that explains why the Holy Spirit stopped Paul from going into Asia, at least at that particular time. He did go later. And stopped him altogether from going to Bithynia. As far as we know, he never went there. Because, you see, there was another apostle that God was sending into that territory. That would seem likely... It's speculation, but I hope it's sanctified speculation. It does seem to explain some things. But how did they become Christians? And here's the heart of it all. Because of the electing grace of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They became Christians because of the electing grace of God. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect means chosen. It's in the plural here. And in this form it can be either a noun or an adjective. Chosen ones, it could be. Chosen by God to be his own. But as Peter tells us, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And what does that mean? And this is probably one of the favorite texts of the Arminian point of view. The Arminian point of view that does not believe in unconditional election, but rather believes that election is based upon foreseen faith. 
that God, knowing ahead of time who would believe, given the opportunity to believe, therefore chose those who he knew would believe in him. And here's the text. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so right out the gate in Peter, we are faced with the doctrine of election and wrestling with what does the Bible teach about it. And let's find out. Let us be clear by God's help and grace. Does foreknowledge mean to know in advance? Or does foreknowledge mean to purpose in advance? To foreknow, does it mean to know in advance, simply knowledge ahead of time? Or does it mean to purpose, to do something in advance, to purpose it and then to carry it out later on in the passing of time? Well, let me give you three reasons why foreknowledge here cannot mean foreseen faith. Whatever it means, it doesn't, can't mean that or certainly can't be proved to mean that. And the first one is because that explanation assumes too much. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God foreknew something. And if we take this only to mean no in advance, which we shall see in a moment is not really the meaning of it, but if we took it that way, it still doesn't tell us anything about what it was God knew in advance. It doesn't say anything about foreseen faith. That's assumed. That's assumed. It is not stated here nor anywhere else in all the Bible. Nowhere in all the Bible does the Bible say or state in any way that God elected on the basis of foreseen faith. It does say elect according to the foreknowledge of God, but it doesn't tell us what that foreknowledge was. If we are thinking that to foreknow means to know in advance only, then it could have meant a number of things. It could have meant that God decided to elect all those that he foreknew would have blue eyes or foreknew would be redheads. And you say, oh, that's ridiculous, and it is ridiculous. But I think it helps point out the fact that this text doesn't really say what it is that God foreknew, even if you take the meaning of foreknowledge to be simply knowing in advance. Furthermore, when you assume that faith is what is meant by the text, that assumes an ability of man to believe without divine enablement. Or, if to remove that obstacle, you say that God the Holy Spirit provides a universally divine enablement to every man, and what makes a difference is some reject that enablement, that enlightenment, and others accept it, you are again postulating something that is stated nowhere in all the Word of God. Where does the Bible ever teach that God universally enables every man to believe? The Bible not only doesn't teach that, the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that natural men are unable to believe. Many texts teach that. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them? Now, can he or can't he? Neither can he know them. You have to become a spiritual man as opposed to a natural man before you can understand the things of the Spirit of God, before you can receive, before you can believe the things of the Spirit of God. You have to be changed 
from natural man into spiritual man. Because as long as you are a natural man, you not only naturally reject them, you don't want to know them, but you cannot know them. You are unable. That's what the Bible teaches. Where do we get this idea, this doctrine of some kind of prevenient grace, meaning universal ability God gives to every man to believe? It's found nowhere in all the Bible. The doctrine of election based upon foreseen faith assumes way too much that is not taught in the Word of God. The second reason why this cannot mean foreseen faith is because that approach teaches a linguistic absurdity. Elect, according to foreseen faith. Elect means to choose or to pick. But, of course, if it's based upon foreseen faith, then really elect is the wrong word. The right word would have to be ratified. You see, either God chose first or man chose first. Either God chose, not based upon man's foreseen faith, or if God chose on the basis of foreseen faith, then really man made the initial choice, the one that matters, God responded to that. God ratified man's choice. And therefore, the whole idea of talking about divine election, divine choosing, divine picking out becomes a linguistic absurdity. You are trying to turn the words of Scripture on their head. You're trying to make them say the opposite of what they plainly say. If that's what the Scripture teaches, then the word should be ratified. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, ratified according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But that's not what it is. Elect, chosen, selected. The third reason why this cannot mean foreseen faith is because That understanding of foreknowledge ignores Bible revelation because divine foreknowledge is not prescience, knowing ahead of time. Divine foreknowledge is advanced purpose, advanced design, divinely initiated relationship. And to know that, all you have to do is study the other times that it's used in the Bible. This word foreknow is used twice in the New Testament as a noun and five times as a verb. Let's look at another place where it's used as a noun. The the, the one other place where it's used as a noun is in our text for today. In 1 Peter 1, verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Where's the other place? It is found in, I'm scrambling here. It is found in, um, now in scrambling for my Bible, I lost my notes. I'll have to turn. Acts 2.23. Here's how it's used as a noun and used of God. Acts 2.23, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Christ was crucified, was delivered into the hands of the Jews and the Romans for crucifixion by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Does that mean that God 
didn't plan anything. He just simply had omniscience, advanced knowledge of what was going to happen. He knew what men were going to do. He didn't purpose them to do that. He didn't necessarily plan for them to do it, but he knew about it ahead of time. Well, obviously, it doesn't mean that there. It obviously means that this is what God planned. This is what God purposed. He purposed the crucifixion of Christ. The Bible tells us elsewhere that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. Slain before the foundation of the world. God planned it. God purposed it. And then God brought it to pass in time. That's the way foreknowledge is used the only other time in the Bible where it's used as a noun. It's used five times as a verb, two times of men, three times of God. Now, here's where the confusion comes in, I suppose. When this word is used of men, of course it means advanced knowledge because men aren't able to purpose things and infallibly bring them to pass. And so when it's used in Acts 26.5 of a man, it does mean knowing ahead of time. When it's used in 2 Peter 3.17 of a man, it means knowing ahead of time. That's close enough. We can turn to that one. 2 Peter 3.17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. That's the same word, foreknow, but the translators broke it down and said, you know this beforehand. You foreknow this. You know this beforehand. Because of men, of course, that's all it can be. But when it's used of God, it has a very different meaning. It takes on an entirely different character because of the nature of God, because of who God is. And when it's used of God, it means advanced purpose, not simply advanced knowledge, but advanced purpose, advanced design. That's the way it's used in Romans 8.29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. To be conformed to the image of his son and so forth. That's the way it's used in Romans 11.2 of Israel, his people whom he foreknew. And that's the way it's used in 1 Peter 1.20, the very same chapter that we're looking at. How does Peter use this same word later on in the chapter? 1 Peter 1.20, again of Christ. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you. That word foreordained is the word foreknew. But the translators recognized what the meaning of the word was, and they supplied a correct translation. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Because whenever God foreknows something... It means that God purposed it ahead of time. God planned it. And so there can be no question that the election that Peter is talking about here is not some kind of conditional election based upon what man does or would do given the opportunity that God somehow knows that in advance. This is talking about divine unconditional election. God for purposes and wisdom known only unto him, chose his people in advance, ahead of time. And in the passing of time, he did everything necessary to bring them to himself. And that's the people that Peter is addressing this epistle to. Those who are elect, 
according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, establishing that meaning for foreknowledge, what are some of the lessons that we should draw from it? Well, first of all, as I mentioned in my introduction, this teaches us unity of doctrine. In other words, Paul's understanding of election, Peter's understanding, or James' understanding of election, John's understanding of election is the same as Peter's understanding of election. They all understand it the same. Paul writes about it often, as we know. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1. Romans 8 and 9, how clear it is. Election is God's choosing in eternity past, ahead of time. Or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that says, Who were chosen unto salvation. God elected. That's Paul's understanding of election. But evidently, it's also the understanding of James. He doesn't talk much about the doctrine of election as such, but here's what he said in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Anything that's good came from God. If salvation is good, it comes from God. If repentance is good, and it is, it comes from God. If faith is good, and it is, it comes from God. Everything that's good originates with God. It doesn't originate in sinful fallen man. And James goes on to say in verse 18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Whose will is the predominant one in this matter of salvation? God's will. Does that mean that man doesn't have a will? It, it doesn't mean that man doesn't have a will, but it means that man's will is not nearly as important as God's will. It means that God's will is the deciding will. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's what James thought about this matter of salvation. He thought it was done by the will of God and a sovereign act of God, which is the same thing that John tells us in John chapter 1. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name who were born Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There it is again. Whose will brought this about? Not the will of the flesh, not the will of man, but of God. Is that not plain enough? Do you remember those billboards that used to be on some of the highways around here? It's been several years ago now since I've seen one. It said, what is it about thou shalt not that you don't understand? You remember those billboards? What is it about thou shalt not that you don't understand? What is it about not according to your will, but according to his will that you don't understand? I know it's hard. I know. We wrestle with this. But the reason it's hard, well, there's two reasons it's hard. One, because of our Adamic sinfulness. We don't like it. We don't, we don't like to be told that salvation is of the Lord totally and completely. We'd like, for it, we'd like for him to help us mightily, but we don't want him to do it all. We'd like a little bit of credit for it. And that's one reason. The other reason is because of so much erroneous teaching. We're flooded with it. And when we hear the wrong thing all of our lives, then when we hear the opposite, it isn't real easy to just switch instantly. It, it takes a little wrestling to get our 
minds and hearts around what the Bible is really saying. But folks, come on, this is what the Bible really teaches. What is it about not of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of the will of God that you don't understand? Isn't that plain enough? So Paul teaches it, James teaches it, John teaches it. Go to John chapter 6, go to John chapter 10, go to John chapter 17. It's full of it. And now Peter, bless his heart, Peter believes the same thing. Elect according to the advance purpose of God. Chosen according to God's purpose, God's plan, God chose you because it was his purpose to have you as his child. So the unity of doctrine. It also teaches us the prominence of the doctrine of election and the sovereignty of God and salvation. This is not an obscure doctrine. It's found all throughout the word of God. It's not a secret doctrine to be whispered only in closets behind closed doors. It's not a sheltered doctrine that's only for the family. We only dare mention it among the people of God. We sure wouldn't want a sinner to hear it. It's a prominent doctrine all throughout the Word of God. What else do we learn from this doctrine? We learn that it exalts God. It exalts his glory. It exalts his sovereign rule. It exalts his mercy. It exalts his power. You say, how do you say, how do you say it exalts his mercy? Because we all deserved condemnation. He could have left us all to ourselves and to our sin and our condemnation. The angels who rebelled were left to themselves. No remedy, no salvation, no savior, no, no rescue for them. They chose sin and rebellion. They sealed their fate they go to eternal perdition. Why didn't God do the same thing for men, for fallen sons of Adam? Because he's a merciful God who is a pardoning God like thee and who has grace so rich, so free that God mercifully and lovingly chose to reach down in the mass of humanity, the multitudes who all deserve to go to hell, and rescued millions and millions and millions and made them his children. You say, well, I don't understand why I didn't rescue them all. I don't either, but I would be very cautious about questioning the wisdom of God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I praise him for his grace. I don't think I'd want to be guilty of faulting him for what I don't understand. This doctrine humbles man. It leaves man boxed up in a corner, doesn't it? Shut up to God. It leaves man with nothing to boast of. And that's why it's not a bad doctrine to proclaim to the unbeliever because it slays his pride. It shuts him up to God alone. He doesn't look within himself for some remedy, not even to look for himself with the, for the faith to believe, the ability to lay hold on Christ. He realizes he can't even do that unless God enables him, and it shuts him up completely to God and makes him realize from the very beginning that salvation is of the Lord. It's not a bad doctrine. 
to proclaim to the unbeliever. And it's a doctrine that greatly strengthens believers, and that's Peter's purpose for giving it here. These are people who are being persecuted. They're suffering trials. They're, they're having hard times, and they might be crying out, Oh, Lord, how long and why me? And Peter said, Don't forget, God chose you for himself before the foundation of the world because he wanted you to be his specially chosen child. Now, come on. He may have some difficult things for you to go through, but you can bear them up for a little while. You're just a pilgrim. You're just a stranger. You're just in the diaspora for a little while. God is preparing you to take you to be with himself forever and forever and forever in heaven. You are the chosen of God. Chin up. Be encouraged. Now, very quickly... For those of you who are unsure of your own salvation, how can I know whether I'm one of God's elect or not is a question that people often ask. Well, here's what you need to ask. Not am I one of the elect, but do I have faith in Christ? Do I have a desire to please the Lord? Do I have an interest in and a hunger for the Word of God? Because it should be evident that if you do, that didn't come from you. Where does that come from if it's found within a fallen son of Adam, a natural man who receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can know them because they are spiritually discerned? Where then does faith in Christ come from? Where does a desire to please the Lord come from? Where does an interest in the Word of God come from if not from the Spirit of God who has chosen you and called you to himself? Where did that come from? And if that's your condition, then recognize what God has done and give him the glory and realize if those things are true, yes, I can say by the grace of God, I have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. I am one of God's elect because I see the evidence of it. He has worked faith in my heart. He has worked love for Christ in my heart. He has given me a desire to follow Christ and to obey him. He has given me a love for the word of God. Praise his name. I must be one of his chosen children. Still not sure where you stand? Then humble yourself before him. Acknowledge your need of him. And go to him for help. The Bible doesn't say he who knows himself to be elect and cometh to Christ will in no wise be cast out. But him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Come as a sinner. Come as a beggar. Come as one who needs the mercy and grace of God. Come claiming no merit of your own, no good of your own, nothing to barter with, nothing to bargain with, nothing to to, uh, leverage God with, no reason why He should save you and make you His own. Just go to Him and acknowledge your complete insufficiency, your sinfulness, your inability, and tell Him that you know you are deserving of condemnation and that you are lost forever if He does not mercifully save you. Go to Him like that. And guess what? Here's the promise. Him that cometh to me like that, I will in no wise cast out. If you will go to Christ 
You shall have Christ. You shall be saved. You shall be one of his own eternally. Shall we pray? Well, Father, what a great salvation, aspects of which we do not fully understand. What a great God you are, far bigger than we at first realized, far more powerful, more completely sovereign than we realized. Oh, Lord, as we learn these things from your infallible word, help us to receive them gladly to believe them humbly, to act upon them obediently. To the eternal praise and honor and glory of Christ. Amen.